The following content contains some explicit language that might not be suitable for children or Mormons. It's Tuesday, April 10th, 2018 from Slate. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In Trump chicanery news, well, other more international Trump chicanery news, Victor Pinchuk, the son-in-law of the former president of Ukraine, Leonid Kuchma, hired Donald Trump to give a speech in 2015 to Kiev via Skype. At the time, the only thing notable about the speech was that Trump paused a lot, but maybe someone should have looked a little deeper. This was a foreign agent paying $150,000 for the man who would become the Republican nominee for president of the United States, Victor Pinchuk, the son-in-law of the former president of the UK. It seems familiar, that title, because just the day before, Kirill Shemilov was in the news. He is a Russian oligarch, and he was on the list of Putin cronies who's actually being sanctioned by the State Department. Now, the thing about Kirill Shemilov, he's not just a Putin crony, or maybe he is that, but he is the son-in-law, or according to reports, and this is far shadier than it should be for the president of a major nation, but he's the ex-son-in-law of Vladimir Putin. The son-in-law also rises. Let's go now to Turkey, where we have Berat Albayrak. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Berat Albayrak is a member of parliament. He is the minister of energy and natural resources. He is an attack dog for President Erdogan. And he is also, you guessed it, the son-in-law of Turkish President Erdogan. And of course, do I have to mention Jared Kushner, minister with great portfolio, but not too much qualifications, the son-in-law of Donald Trump. What is it about son-in-laws that is so virulent? Is it that the daughters see in these men people who remind them of their fathers, and then the fathers in turn say, ah, that guy's like a chip off the old block by marriage. I mean, the sons themselves, maybe there's something more going on that complicates the relationship and the power of the actual sons. Because in most of the cases, it's not the son, but the son-in-law who wields the power and in fact is so dangerous. Maybe the sons have grown up hoping that their fathers would be more nurturing. They weren't. They were off running their businesses or countries or or suppressing dissidents, what have you. And the sons still resent the fathers, but the son-in-laws only look up to the fathers, try to gain resources by being in the father's good graces. Maybe there's something about not having the same surname as the father. So that initial meeting, you could get in the door. Suspicion is a little thrown off. I don't know exactly what it is, but we have to recognize that son-in-law of an oligarch is among the most dangerous forces found in nature, or at least in oligarchical societies, which is why I liked it when ours wasn't one. On the show today, I spiel about that other Trump chicanery scandal, the one with the lawyer. But first, let's talk in a way about Mark Zuckerberg's appearance before the Senate. We will break down the tape in full tomorrow. But today, I talked about very big picture issues with one of the best people who I talked to about this, Brooke Gladstone of On The Media.
This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where uh, it got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, I think about Facebook a lot, especially when I'm not on it. When I'm on it, it just kind of washes over me. And I think a lot of the criticisms of Facebook are like a lot of criticisms of media in the past, that this will change anything. It was said of radio and television and the movies and comic books. And sometimes it's true and sometimes it's not. When I'm having these thoughts, I have a meta thought. It goes back to a book, a comic book, I guess you could call it, a graphic novel called The Influencing Machine. It was written by Brooke Glass. Gladstone. And it's about, well, I'm not going to tell you what it's about. I'm going to have Brooke Gladstone tell you what it's about. And we'll talk about (laughs) Facebook. Brooke Gladstone is the host of On the Media. And she's written The Influencing Machine and The Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. Hello, Brooke. Hello, Mike. So I was just, Uh, yeah, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to tell you what The Influencing Machine is about. That's what I wanted to know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, first of all, I did review quite quickly how every single new technology, starting with basically writing, was condemned by somebody Mm -hmm. for having dire impacts on humanity, whether their ability to remember things or their ability to process them or a tendency to be overexcited and overstimulated and on and on and on. These sort of dire effects beginning with writing things down, which uh, Socrates apparently said was terrible for the memory. And probably it is. And probably us offloading things now, like phone numbers, instead of trying to remember them, is not practicing our memory either. But I know that, well, the central thesis of the influencing machine is that we're always blaming the media for our problems, our problems begin with us, and then are reflected in the media. So when I read The Influencing Machine, I know you weren't dismissing claims that all these uh, very profound and impactful forms of media affect us, but it was important that you contextualize it. And at least, uh, tell me if this is fair, I came away with the impression that 
it is a bit overblown that there really, because there really is no influencing machine. We are the influencing machine. And it's not exactly Cassandraism to talk about every new technology, but it might be a little bit of um, Boy Who Cried Wolf. What I was trying to say isn't so much that it's the Boy Who Cried Wolf, that it's not a problem. It's just when people run around searching for a solution to real problems, they very rarely turn inward. And our tendency to believe that we are smart enough to be outside the problem, it's just all those other dumb people that we have to worry about. And it is true in some ways that digital media are different from other kinds of media. It's still pretty young, this science, but the suggestion is that, yeah, there is some rewiring going on. And uh, the most serious part of it has to do with the way that it directly accesses our emotions so much that these neural pathways skip right by the places where we actually contextualize and process information or even remember it and just goes straight for the gut. So it is changing us. It does worry me. Is this not true of past media? Isn't it true of the movies and how they use the swell of music to affect emotion and how we see everything these days as if it were a movie? You did that piece after 9-11 where you just had all those people talking about the buildings coming down using the phrase, it was surreal, it was like a movie. So Was that is, my piece or your piece? No, Mike? it was your piece. It was your piece. <laughs> <laughs> so, Well, you edited it, so all my piece pieces were your piece in some ways. <laughs> but my point is, what you're saying is true about the dopamine and the specific effects of Facebook. But even as far as the argument, well, Facebook and social media are different because they are affect and rewire our brains. Was that set of past influencing machines like uh, newspapers was, and type? <laughs> it was set of them, especially yeah. of radio and uh, young girls in a uh, couple of hundred years ago reading novels. It was considered to, you know, release their animal instincts. And we were inducing nightmares in children by letting them listen to radio dramas and so forth. And God, I remember when I was a kid, really young, I saw this Zoe Caldwell on PBS. She was doing Medea. And, uh, you know, I stayed up for two days. I couldn't sleep. So it's, yeah, it, uh, it definitely affects our emotions. Art frequently does that. It mostly does that. Uh, The difference is is that we are not engaging in it 24-7. We're not staring at a screen an average of eight or nine hours a day. There was one study that suggested that 85% of people with cell phones, they wake up with it and they go to sleep with it. I mean, they're never apart and that there's a certain anxiety that occurs when the cell phone is out of reach and or out of the room. This is is a condition of our lives now. This is the backdrop of our lives now. If we don't become aware of our own reactions so that we can short-circuit precisely the kind of addictive and reflexive response that we have to these things, and if we're unwilling to turn them off, yeah, we will participate in the continuing debasement of our democracy. 
I mean, I am afraid of that. I yeah. am worried about that. I'm afraid too. And I don't even know that you have to prove that it's uh, the same as always was or it's different because a lot of the technology that we're used to and that you wrote about in your in your little comic book there, um, a lot of the technology <laughs> that you wrote about are things that's... A masterpiece, mm-hmm, a said masterpiece the Atlantic of, Magazine. A masterpiece of form and, <laughs> and content. It seems jejun today, like the radio, how dangerous is that? Well, it aided a genocide in Rwanda and black and white movies. Okay, that's nothing to worry about. Yeah, without him, would Hitler have been as powerful as he was? So there's a lot of media that maybe doesn't seem dangerous now, that doesn't mean it's not dangerous. It's these kinds of the carving of neural pathways, if only to get more dopamine squirts, that I'm really worried about. It's a much bigger picture than uh, the nonsense that Cambridge Analytica did and that Facebook facilitated in a really targeted way and could facilitate over and over and over again, deepening the echo chambers in which we comfortably ensconce ourselves. I won't see the ad that someone else will see because they figured out I'm not in the demographic and vice versa. That's the kind of social disorder, the disappearance of the public square, the appeal strictly to emotion. This bigger issue. Advertisers have known for a long time, there's a a huge raft of research that shows it's about engaging people's emotions. If you want them to buy your product, it's not about appealing to their reason. And there's also a huge amount of research that shows that choosing a president is pretty much the same thing. It's not about policies. It's not about their past history. It's about how they come off? What's their personality? How do they make you feel? I've come to the conclusion that the only way to battle this thing is through, and I know this is going to sound, because it is kind of new agey, but mindfulness meditation. It is designed, this kind of meditation, to force you to step aside and go, hmm, I'm having emotion. The second you do that, you have short-circuited your reflexive tendency to react and decide on the basis of emotion. If we could all just say, hmm, I'm having an emotion, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in right now. Well, that's good. That's something a person can do. But what about <laughs> government regulation? What does what does everything you've covered tell you about the advisability, the practicality, the efficacy of government coming in and actually regulating new and social media? I'm in favor of it more than I was. As uh, Clay Shirky told me the other day, you know, Facebook's user base is the same as China plus three Americas. So it's bigger than any country. As far as I'm concerned, it is now a public utility. Uh, We regulate the gas company, the electric company, you know, water services, Telephone companies, we still do regulate telephone companies, kind of, Yeah, don't we? to the extent we have to. I uh, mean, who uses a telephone? <laughs> <laughs> I just think that they should be regulated as a, as a public utility. Or maybe, maybe we should go back and remember, we used to regulate broadcasting. The broadcast spectrum was a limited resource. So that was regulated in a way that, say, cable TV, which was seemingly or comparatively unlimited was not. Mm -hmm. But if Facebook provides the pipe 
to an unlimited resource, but you go through that pipe and that pipe connects to you. I'm sorry, it's just too powerful to be subject purely to market forces. And Europe understands that, which is why it is forcing Facebook to do things, precisely the things that Facebook, that Mark Zuckerberg uh, told Congress that it was going to do for us. It has to do it. One of the theses that you laid out was that we're always looking for an entity to blame. This is the idea of the influencing machine and the the solution comes from within ourselves. And you just laid out that regulation combined with some form of mindfulness may be the way to go. Mm -hmm. But I was thinking about this. Facebook is in front of Congress because of specifically these, these ads and Russian bots and Cambridge Analytica. But if you break down everything that was done wrong, someone using an avid editor and uh, music created an ad that was full of lies. The Mm -hmm. ad was put on the uh, most popular website in the world. The most popular website then allowed for the creators of the ad to push one version of the ad, maybe that was to trigger neuroticism with certain scoring, Mm -hmm. and then another version of the ad Mm -hmm. that was maybe to trigger aggressiveness. So they had two slightly different versions of the ad. But the ad was, at end, a 30-second facile argument that was full of lies that no individual should have believed in the first place. And if you make a list of everyone and how much they were at fault, I think the Facebook technology is really, really way down on that list. Uh, You want me to react to that? I do. (laughs) (laughs) I think that there's no indication that this technology that Cambridge Analytica was using necessarily had any impact on anybody, whether or not it was trying to inspire aggressiveness or engagement or neuroticism or anything else. That this stuff is just smoke and mirrors. Almost nobody in the business, including the people who design the Facebook ad system who we spoke to, believes this stuff works at all. I think the problem has nothing to do with why uh, Zuckerberg was brought before Congress. I think the fundamental problem has absolutely nothing to do with Cambridge Analytica. The fact is, however, that Facebook enables people to find exactly the kind of people based on hundreds of descriptors, you know, Polish, gay, soccer mom who drives a Chevy, who has three kids and they all live in this zip code, send her this ad and make it disappear in 35 seconds, but send it to her five times a day. Mm -hmm. You know, they can do that kind of thing. And so that's why you can't track them. So it's the delivery technology, because just repeating something over and over and over and over again creates a neural pathway, which is why, you know, you may not think that Hillary was crooked, but after hearing crooked Hillary, crooked Hillary, failing New York Times, you name it, these kind of Homeric epithets that uh, the president used during the campaign and ever after, you start making a connection whether you're aware of it or not. I think maybe calling those nicknames Homeric epithets elevates them. <laughs> Unless the Homer you're thinking of is Simpson. <laughs> or maybe I have to rethink everything I know. Maybe Achilles wasn't fleet-footed. That's all fake news. Who knows? <laughs> so here's my last question. It's a curveball. I know you love sci-fi, including utopian sci-fi like Star mm-hmm. Trek. Anything, mm-hmm. since we're living in sci-fi, anything that you've read or consumed over the years give you an insight into this moment we're in right now? 
I, I don't want to go there because it's going to sound like such a cliche again, but maybe Wally <laughs> is a good indication of where we are right now. We seem to be completely, those of us in the U.S. I'm just talking about, yeah. seem to be completely insulated from the real world or from the worlds of others. And we just sit there and make a mess, never have to take responsibility for it. Yeah, but the cup holders are really comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> Wally. Wally. Brooke Gladstone is a host and editor of On the Media, and she is, along with illustrator Josh Neufeld, the author of The Influencing Machine. Thank you, Brooke. Thank you, Mike. And now the spiel. Yesterday, the New York Times reported that a major midterm election talking point is the possible impeachment of Donald Trump. Surprisingly, this is a talking point being put forward by Republicans. The idea being that regular Joe six-pack voters will quail at the prospect of plunging our republic into a state of chaos that impeachment would represent. The further assumption being that an impeachment by Democrats will be seen as an overreach before it even occurs, if it ever occurs. I don't know. It seems unlikely to me that will actually be the reaction of regular, middle-of-the-road, non-news junkie, persuadable voters. It seems to me more like a professional, hyperpartisan right-wingers version of how a moderate, non-ideological civilian thinks. Then again, I know what the hyperpartisan right-winger would say. The hyperpartisan right-winger would say, fake news, fake news, because that's what they always say. Fake news is like the word like to a millennial. Fake news is praise be to Allah to a devout Muslim. That is fake news springing from the mouth of a Trumpista. It's like a spasm. Anyway, after they get done saying fake news, fake news, a right-winger would say this of my assessment. They would say, well, that's what a left-winger like me thinks of middle Americans. So I'm not sure which is right, but I'm very interested in teasing this out. Because it is clear that the president himself is among those who thinks that the, the fair-minded, third-party, persuadable voter is going to look at the facts that have transpired, the president's lawyer having his offices raided, and will look at that not as a blow to the president, but as bolstering the president's case, possibly as a blow to democracy itself. This is the sort of thing that should pang the conscience of every good American argues the president. And it's a disgrace. It's frankly a real disgrace. It's a, an attack on our country in a true sense. It's an attack on what we all stand for. My God, I interpreted the raid on your lawyer's office as inculpatory to your cause, but you're saying it's exculpatory. Huh, I had not thought of that. Nothing makes your case better than having your lawyer's offices raided. And not just the offices, but also the hotel that Michael Cohen was staying at. He was staying at the Regency while his apartment was being renovated. I hope that all they seized from the Regency was the cell phone that Michael Cohen had on him and that he doesn't take with him on his urban staycation a big accordion file marked Peggy Peterson versus David Dennison. Yes, that is right. Nothing makes your case better than your lawyer's offices being raided. Well, nothing except 
Alan Dershowitz over on Fox. Now, Dershowitz is still ID'd all these years after a lot of evidence is in, still ID'd as a constitutional scholar. He said this of the U.S. attorney for New York taking the extraordinary step of seizing the records of Michael Cohen. If this were Hillary Clinton being investigated and they went into her lawyer's office, the ACLU would be on every television station in America jumping up and down. Well, yes. I would think Hillary Clinton's civil rights were being trampled if she was being investigated for Trump's misdeeds. If Hillary Clinton were being investigated for making hush payments to three women Donald Trump slept with, yes, that would be wrong. Agreed. Stipulated counselor. I need Dershowitz ACLU explaining to me like I need Trump or Michael Cohen telling me how the media should do its job. Quoting from a letter sent from Michael Cohen to the Daily Beast 2015. Quote, I will make sure that you and I meet one day while we're in the courthouse, and I will take you for every penny you still don't have, and I will come after your daily beast, (laughs) your daily beast, and everybody else that you possibly know. So I'm warning you, tread very fucking lightly, because what I'm going to do to you is going to be fucking disgusting. You understand me? You write a story that has Mr. Trump's name in it with the word rape, and I'm going to mess your life up. As long as you're on this freaking planet, you're going to have judgments against you so much money, you'll never know how to get out from underneath it. Donald Trump, in his comments yesterday, also asserted that attorney-client privilege is dead. Dead! Dead like your daily beast. And Mueller was what killed it. But there is one ray of hope. And dare I say, one bit of delight I take in all this sordid tale. It is an institution heretofore unknown to me. It is the Taint Team. The Taint Team is the unit within the Justice Department that reads all the correspondence between attorney and client and only passes on that material which is outside the realm of that which is privileged. For example, planning a fraud were an attorney and a client to do it, that would not be privileged. But discussing strategies to distract the public, that's probably protected. That's probably privileged. The taint team is separated from those officials who may one day bring charges so that the ultimate charging attorneys working the case do not have the taint about them. Now, I suppose that the taint team has to live with their taint that the taint will stick with them, that there is no washing away the taint of all that has come before. But in a way, aren't we all implicated in the taint of this administration and what it's done to the norms and, as may soon be proved, the laws of this democracy? We, the public, have no means of quarantine. Yes, what I'm saying is this. I fear Donald Trump's taint has been smeared all over the American people. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Biennemi produced the gist. He ain't just taint. He's also quite a talented young man. Mary Wilson, just senior producer, does not talk about her past. But I th- I'm beginning to think she was a member of Taint Team 6. You know, the highly skilled taint team who operates under cover of darkness. She'll deny her membership in this organization. She'll angrily deny it. She'll threaten to go to HR should I bring up the possibility that she was on Taint Team 6. But isn't that what a Taint Team 6 veteran would say? Steve Lichtai, executive producer of Slate Pop. Podcast is growing suspicious about the profusion of porcelain figurines and modern fixtures made to look like gas lamps and all these bed and breakfasts. The taint of the quaint, he calls it. I think he's onto something. The gist, I will now issue an apology. If you have a complaint, 
that with no restraint I deign to acquaint you with the team named of taint, I would argue I ain't a vicar or saint. Umpru de Peru and thanks for listening. <laughs>